This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand that I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce the Plus CBD Reserve Collection, a specially curated blend of full-spectrum cannabinoids. Rich and bold, the Reserve Collection products elicit strong feelings of calm, comfort and relief when intense support is needed. Enjoy a deeper CBD experience with Plus CBD's reserve collection of oils and gummies. All of their products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. And with a 90-day satisfaction guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's new reserve collection. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. The focus is on integrative gynecology and natural care for women. It was International Women's Day uh, recently, and uh, that uh, helps us focus on the fact that uh, there's, there's some inequity in healthcare uh, for women. Women uh, sometimes get the short end of the stick, especially when it comes to GYN care. Uh, and today's guest is dedicated to doing something about that. He's uh, Dr. Gary Goldman. Uh, he's a good colleague of mine here in New York City. Uh, his specialty is gynecology with a focus on integrative women's health. He's trained in functional medicine. He has all the great conventional medicine credentials. Uh, he has served as a resident physician in, at Cornell Medical Center and was also chief resident there. He's a veteran physician. He's uh, now at a New York Presbyterian Hospital, Weill Cornell Medical College. Uh, and uh, he is one of the rare birds in integrative medicine uh, who both practices integrative medicine, but also maintains uh, a hospital affiliation where he's uh, very active and he has admitting privileges uh, at uh, New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell. Uh, so without further ado, uh, here's Dr. Goldman. It's a pleasure having you on the program, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ron. Really appreciate you having me here. Okay. Well, well first of all, uh, what uh, got you uh, interested in pursuing uh, a functional approach to women's health. I mean, you, 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 in a conversation previously, you told me how many, uh, births did you attend to? How many babies have you delivered? Like thousands of babies? About, yeah, about, about 10,000. Uh, that's, now all of that was not in my private practice. Uh, a lot of that was during residency. I think my busiest day as a resident, I delivered 23 babies. Oh my goodness gracious! In one shift. Yeah. Uh, so and and so obviously you know you did a conventional approach to uh, OBGYN, uh, and then at a certain point uh, you developed an interest in in using more functional, uh, natural approaches. So what was your epiphany around that? That's a that's a, a kind of a long story. I'll try to keep it short, Ron. The uh, my my background was. Uh, with uh, uh, my internist Mitch Gaynor, uh, oh, Mitch was one of the yes. fathers of functional known to medicine, many of our listeners. You know. Yeah, indeed, and yes. uh, late uh, Dr. Gaynor, and he, of course he's been a guest on Intelligent Medicine many times. 
Yeah. So uh, Mitch and I did residency together, consulted each other frequently. And when I finished my residency and he finished his, uh, I think I was his very first patient. I believe there were still boxes in the exam room when I went to see him the first time. So uh, he was my caregiver for the better part of 27 years. Hmm. And as he became progressively more functional in his approach, uh, I was, uh, I benefited from that. And it was uh, a rare treat to be, uh, what can I say, a guinea pig of yeah. functional medicine. But what a great so, mentor uh, to have, you know, someone who was really uh, one of the true yeah. uh, inspiring leaders in the field. Exactly. So uh, over the years, I, I was introducing progressive uh, elements of functional medicine into my practice before it had the, the cover name. And uh, it wasn't until about uh, five or six years ago that I was introduced to the Institute for Functional Medicine actually through my wife when she was making inquiries to care for her mom who was uh, recently diagnosed at that time with Alzheimer's disease. And as, uh, as she discovered this more formal institute, uh, uh, she introduced me and, and uh, it was life-altering. So that was my epiphany. And I was finally able to get true training and education to augment what I was doing and what I had learned on my own. So where what are some of the conditions where uh, functional medicine or natural medicine or nutrition supplements uh, can have a significant impact uh, beyond what's available in a conventional uh, sure. standard care? That That's called uh, throwing me an easy pitch, Ron. <laughs> it's called a high-hanging curveball for you to hit out of the park. Okay, We're playing, uh, you know, exactly. it's kind of like so, a home run derby here. Right. You know, the, the short answer is everybody benefits from functional medicine because at its root, what is functional medicine? It's going back to the basics. I, I tell my patients, there are very few things I'm going to suggest to you that your grandparents didn't lecture to you your whole life. You know, uh, go outside and get some fresh air and stop eating that junk and eat, eat your vegetables uh, and so forth. So, uh, you know, so much of functional medicine is ultimately lifestyle. And when you uh, lead a, a healthy lifestyle, you give your body all of the elements it requires to do what it's truly made to do. Now, unfortunately, we live in uh, a society where our foods have been altered, uh, the quality of our air, our water, uh, uh, you know, that's so stressful. Um, there's, there's very few elements left that look in any way similar to the world in which our grandparents were raised. Um, so, so in many ways, we're fighting against society uh, in order to get back to the basics. Well, another way to so, look at uh, it is what are some of the uh, factors uh, in Western lifestyle uh, that conspire against women's health that may give rise to these frequent gynecological complaints that we see? Such a great question. So the, one of the first, uh, I'll bring up, for instance, in the reproductive age group, polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, and I was taught that this is one of those, quote, enigmatic diseases. Mm. You know, we don't really understand what causes it. There's obviously, uh, it's associated with all kinds of uh, excess weight, um, but uh, ultimately, we don't understand, is it adrenal in origin? Is it ovarian? Acne, hirsutism, it... infertility, you know, all that. Yeah. Exactly. So um, the, the deeper you get into the study of polycystic ovary syndrome, it's really fascinating where so many elements of what we learned in medical school, literally every class 
plays a part from from neuroanatomy to endocrinology uh lifestyle um uh, and so forth it, what we have found is that uh you for patients especially who are anovulatory who are not getting regular cycles uh a loss of as little as 5% of their body weight can induce ovulation in over 50% of women hmm. now what a simple thing to recommend and it certainly sheds light on the etiology so a lot of our pco patients better than 80% are overweight. And what we have found is by improving something as simple as diet and exercise, we can reverse all of the sequela, all, every single one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're uh, androgenism. Lower, d- lower DHEA, lower testosterone. Uh, Correct. Not just, it does not the patients don't just feel better, but uh, biochemically, uh, they improve their LH-FSH ratio, improves all these uh, markers uh, that are hallmarks of the disease uh, recede. Correct. Uh, and so it's, it's amazing how you get back to the basics and you look at the adverse lifestyle that so many of us lead and you see those repercussions. Uh, another example would be for the uh, older uh, folks who are now nearing and entering menopause and, and I don't have to tell you how many people are plagued by adverse symptoms of menopause. Uh, once again, when you look at, at people's lifestyles and improve there, you can see tremendous changes in the way that people experience things like hot flashes, um, headaches, uh, night sweats. Um, these things are amenable to behavioral approaches. Uh, I won't say forever and for always, and that's where we have so many other tools, but lifestyle does play a big part in these ailments. Uh also, I've heard it said that uh, endometriosis, which is an inflammatory disorder, is amenable to natural therapies, and uh, there's a linkage to uh, chemical exposure. Can you uh, discuss that? Sure. You know, the the big study actually goes back to dioxin. So uh, it was a, a study that was initially done on uh, great apes, where they induced endometriosis by sewing shut their cervix. And as a result, they would get all of their menstrual flow retrograde out through the fallopian tubes and into the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these poor apes suffered uh, terribly with, with all kinds of endometriosis. Um, they then exposed uh, normal apes without without uh, sewing this, uh, the cervix shut. And just by exposing them to dioxin, uh, they were able to induce the same exact histology, mm-hmm. the same appearance of endometriosis in the pelvis. Um, now, of course, you may say, well, where does dioxin come from in this day and age? Right. It's, it's a uh, horrifying it's answer. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's a byproduct of um, bleaching tampons. Ooh. There is detectable dioxin in bleached tampons. Why does anyone, why does anyone need a sparkling white tampon? Why isn't an organic cotton color sufficient? That, that actually uh, so sounds like a hybridization of, of the two experiments. You, in effect, block menstrual flow to some degree with a tampon, mm-hmm. uh, and then mm-hmm. you introduce a chemical agent, uh, right in there where it's uh, close to the target organs. That's not good. Exactly. Uh, you know, this fascinating information on endometriosis, I'll, I'll quickly uh, share with you a study that came out on mice uh, looking at um, their microbiome because we understand that uh, the gut flora has tremendous impact on our health. 
So this very clever group, I believe they were at uh, WashU St. Lou, um, an excellent institution. And what they did was they induced endometriosis, again, presumably by sewing the cervix shut in these mice. And uh, they then empirically treated some of them with a variety of different antibiotics, some of which would have uh, more or less effect on particular types of flora in their gut. And they then sacrificed those animals and looked at the ones who had not been treated versus treated. All of the treated animals had less amounts of endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the mice treated with metronidazole, also mm -hmm. called flagell, mm -hmm. um, had the lowest amount of endometriosis. They knocked it down five-fold. Mm. So by the way, which, by the way is a treatment for bacterial vaginosis, uh, which is correct. a kind of overgrowth of harmful bacteria vaginally. So the idea being that uh, overgrowth of harmful bacteria in the intestine may be the mediator by which uh, endometriosis uh, injury gets compounded with uh, progressive inflammation. I guess that's the take home. Well, or, or perhaps there's some something being elaborated by a particular group of, of flora. Now, metronidazole's effect is especially strong against uh, non-oxygen-requiring bacteria. Those mm -hmm. are called anaerobic bacteria. Mm -hmm. And um, the second part of the experiment is that they did a fecal transplant. They took uh, um, healthy mice, reintroduced normal flora via a fecal transplant into these treated mice, and lo and behold, all their endometriosis rapidly returned. So again, it, it's highly suggestive that there's something in normal mouse flora that allows for endometriosis growth. What it is, hard to say. So, so the take-home is not necessarily that we want to give all women metronidazole ad infinitum, uh, or uh, fecal transplants, maybe it's, you know, uh, not yet ready for prime time uh, for a condition like uh, endometriosis. But uh, there are natural measures by which we can optimize the microbiome. What are, what are some of those? Right. So, um, interestingly, there's some studies out recently that for folks who, for women who are having recurring vaginal infections, that a vaginal flora transplant literally will cure them. Hmm. Like a probiotic. Uh, similarly, or... right. So, so because we don't know which particular flora are are the uh, guilty parties, if you will, um, just transferring healthy flora from somebody else seems to be very useful. Uh, we've seen that are, for are depression. We've seen flora that for banks? obesity. Are there? Are there like? No. You know, <laughs> okay. No. That could but, be a whole uh, we, new new we, medical. We know what the. <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting job, <laughs> right? But. Um, we, you know, we do know that, that the normal flora of the vagina is, is uh, primarily lactobacilli, uh, and then the, the next player is uh, bifidobacter. So um, I'm actually trying to come up with a nice vaginal insert, uh, a suppository probiotic, uh, properly pH'd to help restore the flora uh, in an effort to do so in a more... Um, uh, specified manner, right? So but, but uh, we'll see if that works. Short of these these very serious medical conditions, uh, yeah. there are so many women who are plagued by chronic yeast infections or uh, what's uh, called bacterial vaginosis. Uh, you know, with discomfort, discharge, odor, uh, and the answer is not uh, uh, vaginal douching. In fact, that's counterproductive. Correct. Correct. So um, 
No one knows what to do with these folks. Uh, the, there are national protocols for treating women with recurring yeast infections, uh, but equally as problematic are the bacterial vaginosis recurrent episodes, and there are no national protocols. And I believe it's because we're honing in too small. We've lost the forest for the trees. Where does normal vaginal flora come from? Well, it comes from being a healthy person and eating healthy foods and living a healthy lifestyle allows the GI tract to have normal flora and so too the vaginal flora. And of course, they're in close communication. They're in close proximity, but upwards of 80% of the vaginal flora arises from the GI tract. So when I'm treating my patients, it's not just about giving a vaginal antibiotic and ignoring the rest of the body. I treat the whole patient and we start talking about everything from, tell me about your exercise regimens and the degree of stress you have in your life and how you diminish stress and so forth. We look at the whole person and lo and behold, we get, we get cures. Do you have a handle on uh, fibroids? Because uh, uh, I recall, you know, when I was uh, a macrobiotic practitioner in the very early days of my practice in the 1980s before I kind of adopted a more uh, modified uh, uh, Mediterranean diet uh, with the inclusion of animal protein, uh, I would put a lot of uh, women on a macrobiotic diet, uh, which could backfire spectacularly because of the, uh, the really high levels of uh, estrogenic compounds in, in soy, for example, uh, which was like a real mainstay of that diet. Uh, do you, do you treat, uh, fibroid patients, uh, with a, with a dietary modification? What have you found most helpful? So I start with my fibroid patients actually by looking very deeply at their estrogen metabolism. Uh, we degrade the main estrogen in our body, estradiol, via three different competing pathways. And the way that one person degrades estrogen is very different from the next, most of which is genetically determined, mm -hmm. but some of which is also lifestyle determined. Um, we can measure those metabolites. One of the metabolites is called 16-hydroxyesterone, and it's highly estrogenic. In other words, we're converting the most estrogenic compound in the body, estradiol, into an equally estrogenic mm -hmm. metabolite, 16-hydroxyesterone. These folks suffer from estrogen-dependent problems such as fibroids, endometriosis. And it's how they metabolize and estrogen. They don't, they don't properly break it down. It, it, you Correct. Know, a couple of ways that could be a problem. One is you make too much. The other is if you make you know, perhaps a normal amount, but you're simply not breaking it down or you're transforming it into uh, more highly uh, fibroid generating uh, estrogens, right? Exactly, exactly. And if we want to improve the metabolism, we can do so through a variety of mechanisms. There are many supplements that we use to drive the preferable pathway, the 2-hydroxy pathway, uh, one of which is DIM, D-I-M, uh, also known as uh, diindolomethane, which comes from broccoli and other cruciferous vegetables. Mm -hmm. uh, now, unfortunately, if you tried to do it from broccoli alone, you would give the cows a run for the money in your methane production. Yes, right. So, you have to eat enormous uh, amounts of broccoli. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, you need a lot of broccoli. But it's easy enough to take a DIM supplement. Um, Indole-3-carbonyl is, an, is a, another supplement we use to drive that pathway. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we look to inhibit the competing pathways, and that can be done with things like pomegranates and mm -hmm. grapefruit mm -hmm. uh, and hops. 
uh, as well as uh, bioflavonoids and vitamin C. Do you, so do you like flaxseeded oil for, many that, approaches. Uh, for that pathway? So not the oil, but the, the ground uh, oh, shells. Mm -hmm. Right, so flax the, the flax shells. Yeah. Exactly. So those have been shown to be a true estrogen antagonist. They block the effect of estrogen. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, actually an interesting study looking at women who have had a history of breast cancer when they were given sham muffins, I think a blueberry muffin, versus a flax muffin. The women who used flax muffins had a lower rate of recurrence of breast cancer than those using the sham muffins. So, um, yeah, diet uh, can clearly have an impact on the risk of recurrent breast cancer. And, and measures to reduce estrogen would also include uh, reducing your adipose uh, tissue burden because the fat cells are like estrogen factories. Uh, and exercise, which attenuates uh, estrogen, because, I mean, there's evidence that you can literally walk for the cure. Uh, if you have breast cancer, you can lower your risk of breast cancer recurrence uh, by, you know, significant double digits by exercising on a regular basis. So that might also have a positive impact on fibroids. Correct. There are studies that show you, you can reduce the risk of estrogen-dependent cancers and tumors by upwards of 30% by diminishing your body fat. Is there, so exercise and diet have a huge part to play. Is there a contraindication to using uh, progesterone? You know, uh, there are a lot of, uh, you can go to a health food store these days and buy uh, yam extract, which yields uh, uh, bioidentical progesterone and smear it on your skin. It'll be absorbed transdermally. Uh, a lot of women take that to alleviate menopausal symptoms. Uh, is it a, a plus or minus when it comes to fibroids? So, uh, f interestingly, we, we treat fibroids with um, estrogen blockade uh, pharmacologically. We give medicines like Lupron uh, or Oralissa, which uh, prevent the production of estrogen. They put people into a uh, temporary state of menopause. Um, so starving fibroids of estrogen allows them to shrink substantially. There are also studies looking at progesterone blockers, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, um I think mefipristone is a progesterone uh, blocker. That's actually and, an ingredient, um, I think, in the morning after pill, I think, right? Exactly. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And um, and that has also been shown to reduce the rate of, of uh, the, the rate of growth of fibroids. The problem is there. It gets very costly. Yeah. It's not FDA approved for that medication. So that's typically not available to patients outside of an a, uh, investigative protocol. But the implication uh, you might want to withhold of, the, the topical progesterone? I'm, I'm not clear on that. Right. So um, the, there's controversial data, or I'd say imprecise data, on what happens if you augment progesterone for fibroids. Um, I will point out that uh, we lack the enzyme to convert precursors of progesterone in yams into active progesterone in ourselves. Hmm. So... You can take a yam, you can bring it to a lab, treat it with a particular enzyme that we don't have, and you can develop progesterone from that. So we have a natural progesterone that requires a, a, a prescription, but what you, if you just take a yam supplement, it doesn't become progesterone in our bodies, unfortunately. Uh, topical progesterone that is uh, physiologically active requires a prescription. There's a lot of, quote, progesterone-containing creams, but in this country, it requires a prescription. So if you can buy something over the counter, by definition, it has a sub-therapeutic level. So okay. I think those are a waste. So it's, it's less, the, less uh, efficacious, but also less yeah. harmful. Okay. 
Yeah. But I'm a big fan of progesterone. Let me be yeah. clear. When, this is where the terminology gets very confusing, Ron, mm -hmm. because the, so many people confuse the term progestin with progesterone. Yeah. So when people take Provera, also called Medroxy, Progesterone, Acetate, or MPA for postmenopausal hormone therapy, that is an artificial form of progesterone called a progestin. Mm -hmm. It comes from an entirely different molecular backbone, and it has very different effects on the body. Um, I'm not a fan of progestins at all. They clearly increase the rate of breast cancers, uh, and we've seen that in people taking Increase appetite, taking gain weight, the birth control effects, pill. yeah. Correct. And even the progesterone-containing IUD. Now, I don't want to be alarming. The, the increased rates of breast cancer here are very small, barely detectable. But they are detectable. They are measurable. Mm -hmm. But again, relative to the baseline rate of breast cancer, which is 12%, um, I don't think that, that those small numbers are, for most women, very meaningful. I want to get into, uh, in just a moment, um, natural hormone replacement therapy, which I think uh, is one of the tools in your armamentarium. Uh, but uh, we're going to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. Today's discussion is about uh, integrative gynecology. We're talking to Gary Goldman. Uh, his specialty is uh, gynecology, but also uh, integrative women's health and functional medicine. And uh, we'll be right back with more on today's Intelligent Medicine podcast. This is Dr. Ronald Hoffman.